Hello, my name is Sarah Harrison. I am a technical advisor at the International Federation of Red Cross Red Crescent Societies, the reference centre for psychosocial support. You are listening to The Heartbeat of Humanity, our new podcast series for staff and volunteers within the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement. And these are for staff and volunteers who are working in mental health and psychosocial support services. In this episode today, I would like to explore how we can better care for our staff and our volunteers. So why should we care about staff and volunteers? Why are they important? All organisations, whether you are a national society, the Federation or the International Committee of the Red Cross, have a duty of care towards all employees, staff and volunteers. Duty of care comes from a legal perspective in relation to labour law, so looking at the physical safety, the health and well-being of all staff and volunteers whilst they are working for the Red Cross Red Crescent movement. This also includes issues such as volunteering insurance and personal protective equipment, particularly if they are working in insecure environments or public health emergencies. There is also the legal perspective in relation to doctors, nurses and healthcare professionals as a workforce. They have training, skills, competencies and clinical supervision that are necessary in order for them to do their jobs. And this is the same for the staff and volunteers of the Red Cross Red Crescent movement. We have an obligation to train our staff and to train and support our volunteers to build them up with the necessary skills and competencies and provide the supportive supervision to enable them to safely carry out their work. Secondly, there is a duty of care from an ethical perspective. Healthy and happy volunteers of staff are more productive. It also makes the work environment and the tasks that they are being asked to carry out more fun to do. Thirdly, there is a work environment which is incredibly important to support and facilitate staff and volunteers in their work. It is not only about the individual, but also about the organisation as a whole, its personalities, its team environments, and its supportive physical work environment that enables volunteers and staff to want to continue working with the Red Cross Red Crescent movement. This is part one of a two-part podcast focusing on caring for staff and volunteers. In this first episode, we will talk to Dick Lamine about caring for staff and volunteers in relation to international humanitarian law. Also, we will speak with Hanalee Hegman on staff well-being and Ajmal Dulu from the Federation on Volunteer Management. First, we are talking with Dick Lamine, who is the project manager for the Joint Project on Addressing Mental Health and Psychosocial Needs in Armed Conflict, Natural Disasters and Other Emergencies. So Dick, please tell us, what are the links between international humanitarian law and caring for staff and volunteers? So I mean, international humanitarian laws once created to protect um, both the civilian population but also those who are participating in armed conflict from I mean, the, the difficulties in, in war and really to, protect, to protect life, health and, and dignity in war. And part of that is also to protect mental health. So, so I would say that international humanitarian law um, is a tool to protect people in armed conflicts and, and definitely should be used also to protect uh, mental health and psychosocial well-being. 
Uh, one example could be, for example, that it's not allowed to, to attack the civilian population, and, and, and the civilian protected population should be really protected from the effects of war. And today we know a lot more about the, the mental health consequences also of, of those armed conflicts that are ongoing, uh, not least the use of explosive weapons in densely populated areas and so on. And what would you say are the links between international humanitarian law and staff and volunteer care, or indeed if there are any links? One of the, the kind of key elements in humanitarian law is, is the protection of the mental, or I would say healthcare personnel, and that includes also the volunteers of the Red Cross and Red Crescent, uh, and the staff, of course. And, and so when we are talking about healthcare personnel in war, we are also talking about those who are caring for mental health. Uh, so many of our services that we provide during armed conflicts should actually be protected by international humanitarian law. Uh, and also when we are providing mental health and psychosocial support. And also the Red Cross and Red Crescent emblems are, are kind of these symbols of protection, signs for protection, uh, that should ensure that we are marked clearly to distinguish between uh, those who should be protected and not protected and those who are providing humanitarian services. So also when our mental health and psychosocial support volunteers and staff are operating during armed conflicts, they should use uh, the big emblems uh, to, to show that we are protected personnel. And you're also someone that has a strong legal background yourself and someone with experience in, in policy. So how can legal advisors and policy officers advocate for mental health and psychosocial support within their national societies? I would say that the, the, the policy uh, and law are tools, means that we can use to, to ensure that we achieve our humanitarian objectives. So by using international law, I mean human rights law, international humanitarian law, or even our policy work, we we take measures to to actually to in particular to prevent mental health harm, uh, but also to facilitate a lot of the work that we should do uh, more operationally. So I think we could all work together. Well, we see the law as one tool, but when well other mental health and psychosocial support services could be other tools. So it actually comes well together, uh, and and also the national society legal advisors or even policy advisors they are instrumental in in actually moving this forward, also in dialogue with governments and uh, with other stakeholders to ensure that the, the legal frameworks, but also the, the, kind of the political environment, are conducive for mental health and really supporting all the efforts that we want to take and should take in, in terms of addressing mental health and psychosocial needs at all times. Thank you, Dick, for your time speaking with us. Thanks. We will now talk to Hanley Hegman, the former Senior Health Officer at the IFRC. Hanley, why should the Federation and national societies care about their staff and volunteers? Um, I think that, first of all, staff and volunteers make the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement. So, so that is obvious why we really need to take well care of our national and international staff. We must also remember that physical and mental health always go together. Without one, there is not the other one. So, so that is one of those um, basic things to think about when we talk about staff health and welfare. If a staff member falls sick during an emergency operation, it usually takes a lot of resources to care for one person. Preventive health care is therefore always important. We need to prepare our staff well so that they can maintain their own health during a mission. So that is uh, a package that, that has very many components, but they are all 
uh, important for, for staff health. And how did you prepare the staff then? First of all, they need to have training. They need to have education about their own health, which is usually given uh, during the induction courses. And we also have health briefing packages so that people know um, how to prepare for that specific country. People also need to have access to reliable information because we know that internet is one of those that is full of information, but it's not all reliable. So we need to provide our staff for the information we know that we can trust. In Federation, we follow WHO guidelines, obviously, and of course also to remind about the PS Center in Copenhagen and all the material that is available there. And what is the role, would you say then, for human resources departments in relation to staff health and well-being? Um, HR should ensure access to healthcare. That is one of those important things that, that in general, the healthcare for humanitarian workers is not always there. It's an, an special um, uh, trade or, or information and therefore it, it's important that all national societies select their own healthcare provider whom they can trust when it's a uh, rapid deployment or a long-term deployment so that they provide the, the correct information for people. There should also be a staff health policy in place and that should be carefully designed so that it has in place all the guides for the activities and procedures. Um, then the organizations should also um, decide who is the focal point for staff health. We know that there are not that many national societies who have an, an full-time focal point, a person who is doing staff health, but at least there should be somebody whom to, to turn to in HR or in the organization when there is a health problem, either mental or physical, but, but whom to ask if there are any concerns or, or raise any, any concerns that, that people have during an, an deployment and, and during any kind of, of operation or activity we are doing. Mm. Of course, it should be a healthcare professional if possible, but, but that is not yes. always possible. So, so at least to have a name and a phone number whom to contact whenever there is a an, an problem. And then it needs to be reminded that confidentiality is very, very important. Without trust, there is no really real flow of information. And people don't dare to come and, and raise their concerns if they don't trust the organization. So that must be said at all times that it is important and, and people need to understand that health information is not something that we share. It's yes. kept always at all times, um, always to those who should be informed and nobody else. And that health information would then be kind of secure and protected, whether it's a physical problem or if it's a, a more mental health related issue. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that it's important also that the organisations and especially HR uh, knows the 
history of a person and that person is also ready to share it so that they are not deployed to places that do not fit them and their health. For instance, somebody who has a tragic history of, of um, some kind of critical incident, sometimes it's not good to go to an active war zone or, or things that remind about that former situation. So it needs to be discussed in openly but in a confidential manner. And I think that if people don't have the trust, they will not share. Yeah. And um, you, when you were working with um, IFIC, you had a system of staff health or staff stress counsellors. I'm not quite sure the terminology for them, the title for them. Um, what, what role did they play in relation to, to a human resource department, for example, within IFRC? So we have in each and every region two stress counsellors, as we call them, and the practice is, and, and what we really encourage is that before the person starts a deployment or just when they have arrived to the country, they have a briefing with one of these stress counsellors so that they learn what IFRC is offering and what the staff health policy says, what is the stress management in the field providing so that if there would be some kind of situation where they need to, to contact this person, either for themselves or a team member, they would know whom to go to. So the, the trust is already built, there is already a connection, and then it's much easier to go and tell and contact the, the counsellor when there is a need to, to talk. And the agreement is that has been always emphasised that all these discussions are confidential. And if there would be a reason to highlight any any part of, of the discussion to a manager or to HR or to any other person, line manager, it always goes with the approval of the person. It never goes behind uh, somebody's back. We never leak information out without discussion first. Because sometimes you need, for instance, the manager's approval or, or support. Oh, yes. But that discussion should never take place without the approval of the person first. And I guess the, the informed consent is also part of trust as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And the last question I have for you today um, was, what would be your top three tips to IFRC managers and also other leaders within national societies on how they can best support their staff? I think that this starts with making sure you have a staff health policy in place because that should already have all the components that are related to staff health. Um, it must, of course, follow the national labour law yes. and respect the occupational health standards in the country. Um, and it's important also to make sure that it's reviewed uh, regularly because we have new situations in place every now and then and, and that must be reflected in the staff health policy. So so make sure that, that somebody goes through it every now and then and checks that it's up to date. There's not old information. The other thing I would say is that ensure you have a system in place to support staff before during and after any deployment. Um, ask staff what they need to feel, 
what they need to feel cared and feel safe and and healthy. I think it's it's one of those that we sometimes forget to to ask and get the feedback and also collect the information when people are returning from mission that yes. what can we learn from this deployment what what was missing there to to make it perfect and one part is between missions especially to provide training uh, so that people get prepared for their missions to understand what is for instance teamwork how to to support each other and this training should also give participants tools and and um, uh, for self care and teamwork so that people know how to take care of themselves what are the alarming signs in yourself or in the team member to to understand when they need to to say that hey you need support and you need help now and then of course there needs to be a critical incident management plan that is created and tested also and well known uh, to all staff so that they know that there is a plan already and not start to to make any kind of of uh, thoughts and and ideas how to do this when it has already happened people need to know how it works what are the steps to be taken after a critical incident and do we have all the resources we need and is this working 24/7 because yeah, it's very critical yeah <laughs> because i think that sometimes we forget that incidents can happen at any time uh, of the day or or yeah. during the weekends and during the boxing day as tsunamis happen do we have a system if there is a critical incident during that time and and how can we access so that we know whom to to approach so that you don't have to be desperate searching support when it's needed that yes. there's an information that is given before deployment and that is is then an way of feeling safe also during the the mission and I think it also calms managers down and, and maybe prevents a sense of panic if there is suddenly an incident. If they already have, like you said, the protocol in place and the policy, they can fall back on it. Absolutely, and and this is also a way to show the employees that that we do have a plan, so you don't have to worry. Thank you, Hanley, for taking your time to speak with us. Our final guest in this episode is Ajmal Dulu who is the Global Volunteering Coordinator at the IFRC Secretariat in Geneva. So the first question, Ajmal, is why should national societies care for their volunteers? Thank you, Sarah. Um, it is the duty of care of all national societies to provide the volunteers uh, with the most appropriate tools so that they can conduct their activities in the safest manner possible. Now, our movement relies on millions of volunteers to achieve our objectives and we often call them the backbone of our organization. So without them, we wouldn't exist. And volunteers, they provide their time freely to the requestant and their safety, security, and well-being need to be ensured at all time. If they're not properly supported, several things can happen to them. Um, in the best case scenario, they will leave the organization. In the worst case, they will be injured, they can carry a trauma for the rest of their life, or even in the worst case, they lose their lives. And we've you know, seen that many times before. That's a shame to hear that. 
Um, so the second question to you then is, who is responsible for the care and well-being of volunteers within the national societies? I would say, first of all, it's the leadership of the national society. Um, so they, they have the responsibility of that care and well-being for the volunteers. So they need to ensure that, you know, there's a proper mechanism in place within the national society to ensure their safety, security, well-being. Um, so they need to also ensure that the necessary resources are put in place for this to happen. Okay, so it's the responsibility of the senior management? Yes. Yeah, and is that, does that then get dissolved down to, for example, volunteer team leaders? Of course. So it's the, I would say the responsibility of the leadership to, to make sure that the uh, staff members working on, on, um, on volunteers or with the volunteers directly are properly resourced. Right. So they need to have the uh, financial resources. They need to have uh, you know, the proper contacts with uh, different entities, the professionals, etc. Uh, so I would really say that it stops from the from the leadership level that then trickles down to the to um, to the staff um, in charge of volunteering development. Great. And then what would you say is the role of the volunteer management departments in relation to volunteer care and well-being? Um, I would say, I mean, in, in our national societies, uh, they don't even have a, a volunteer management department. Some of them are, you know, uh, it's the HR department or yeah. something that takes care of volunteers. So I would say that whoever is in charge of the volunteering development and management uh, need to ensure that they are, that volunteers are aware of the risk that they might face while on duty. They need to pre- provide it with the proper training, uh, per- uh, personal protective equipment to carry out the task in the safest manner. They need to have the time to to rest and recuperate from stressful activities, and they need to be able to access support whenever needed. Needed. So this includes psychosocial support, insurance, and so on. Okay. And then I would say finally, they need to be treated with respect. Yeah. And what are your top three tips that you can advise national societies to help them better care for their volunteers? I think it would be excellent to have a focal point within the national society that the volunteer need support uh, and that preferably happens at the branch level. Um, they need to invest in professional staff that can support them best and in case that is not an option to make sure that they are referred to a professional who can help them out. And I would say the third thing is to assess the risk before sending volunteers out of uh, out on duty uh, to make sure that they're doing no harm by asking them to do something, you know, so the staff cannot force somebody to go out knowing that they might encounter um, harm on, on their way and then I would say lastly don't treat them like a work like a workforce yeah so how are they different from a workforce then I would say I mean volunteers they pre, they provide their, their time freely so I mean I think we we should really treat them with respect as I said before and yes. and listen to um to their ideas um because they are the one really on the ground representing the organization so if if we treat them like a workforce I don't think they, they, their level of motivation will be the same as uh, they would be just join the organization, you know, working for yes. such a large humanitarian organization like ours. Um, they need to be listened to, to, you know, share their ideas and to propose uh, different solutions because they are, they are the one um, yeah, doing all the work for the organization. Yeah, we should be treating them with respect indeed. Thank you for that. Yeah. And thank you very much for your time today, Ajma. Thank you. You have been listening to The Heartbeat of Humanity a podcast series for Red Cross Red Crescent Movement staff and volunteers about mental health and psychosocial support. In this first episode, we have been exploring the importance of staff and volunteer well-being from the global and organisational perspectives 
for national societies and for the Federation. In part two, we will continue to discuss how we can better care for our staff and volunteers by talking to Ismail Youssef, who is the Senior Psychological Support Officer at the Ethiopian Red Cross, and to ICRC's Bangkok-based Regional Staff Psychosocial Support Coordinator, Dr. Kinan Alderman. You can find more resources about mental health and psychosocial support on the IFRC Psychosocial Centre website. Resources include manuals, webinars, policy documents, program materials, educational videos, and information about upcoming trainings. My name is Sarah Harrison, and I hope you have enjoyed listening to this Heartbeat of Humanity podcast. Remember that mental health matters.